0: When you tell people they cannot speak, that is when they scream. But when you tell people they cannot scream, that is when they tear things down.
1: Hello there from Bedford. How are you all doing? It's been so good to get back home. So good to get back, see my family, prepare for the year ahead. Got loads happening with the podcast, with filmmaking, with the football club. We're going to be keeping very, very busy Anyway, welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by Gemini, the only place I'm using for buying Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack, and today on the show I've got Vivek Ramaswamy. Now, Vivek reached out, wanted to come on the show. He's a friend of Alex Epstein, and he's written this book called Woke Inc., which some of you might laugh at. They go, "Yeah, but Pete, you're pretty woke." Um, he talks a lot about free speech. He talks a lot about stakeholder capitalism. And some of the things he's talking about, I'm kind of interested in. I don't buy everything he's talking about, but I certainly found a bunch of subjects that I wanted to talk about with him. When, especially when he talks about this managerial class that like is the defining struggle of our time, yeah, it's definitely an interesting subject to get into. I probably would like to talk to Vivek again sometime on the podcast. I've got no idea what you lot will make about this. Uh, I'd be interested in your feedback. Not sure if you know Vivek, but please do get in touch. You can get in touch about this or anything. Uh, my email address hello hello at did.com and I will get back to you as soon as I can. Uh, welcome to the show, Vivek. I'm not going to attempt to pronounce your surname. But I- you
0: can pronounce it. It's not that Ramaswani. hard. Ramaswani? Ramaswamy.
1: Ramaswami. Ramaswami. It's
0: Vivek like cake. Vivek. Uh, so not Vivek, so I've yes, got that Vivek wrong. Vivek, and then Ramaswamy. All
1: right, well, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks, man. So, Mr. Epstein, Alex Epstein recommended yes. you come on the Bitcoin tour
0: our good, our good friend. Yeah, he uh, he told me the Bitcoin crowd might be into some of the stuff I'm spending my time on these days. I
1: don't know if you would call me a friend, maybe a,
0: a sparring partner.
1: Sparring partner, yeah. <laughs> I gave him a hard time. Okay, well, I pushed him back. He can a little handle bit. it, I would assume. Well, I'm I'm sent to I'm sent to right in the UK, so I'm uh, ultra left woke in, in in the US. Okay, got it. So I'm uh, right on your target list.
0: I mean, I I you know I don't even know what these words mean anymore. To be honest with you, I think the spectrum itself, right, left. Is itself in need of definition. It is a skeleton that we try to hang things on, but uh, but I think that it's quite possibly even the wrong skeleton in the first place.
1: Or obliterating, so we stop dividing ourselves.
0: Well, I mean, I'm not just one of these like unity. Can't we all get along? Come in the middle, centrist type of people. I actually reject the idea that there is a unidimensional spectrum of left and right. I think there are many axes, and I think we sometimes in our political discourse try to retrofit a multi-dimensional axis into a bidirectional axis, and then we come up with curiosities that wonder why the Republicans can't settle on a speaker. And I think a lot of those I mean, to pick the, the news of this week, and a lot of those curiosities are explained by the fact that we're using the wrong framework in the first place. And so if I had to pick one If I had to do my reductive version of it, I would at least pick a better reductive version than R versus D, Republican versus Democrat. I I talk about this and the difference between the managerial class and the everyday citizen. If I had to pick one bidirectional axis that best described the two poles of American political struggle, it would be the members of the managerial class in government, in the private sector, in every institution we know, the hired hands who are supposed to manage through some level of bureaucracy and institution, and then the everyday individuals who are supposed to be the people who that in- institution serves in a government that's – in a democracy that's a government and a citizen. But it could be the same in a corporation with you where you have – the owners of the corporation versus the hired class that runs those corporations today. In a nonprofit group, it could be the cause or the people that it's supposed to serve versus the people who sit. I love that passive verb "sit" on that on the board of that organization. And so, anyway, that, that's kind of how I see the yeah. world: is you've got the managerial class, you've got the everyday citizen, and then you've got this weird third category of creators that uh, that can maybe mediate the you know the, the other two groups. But uh, that's a long way of saying. I don't know what left, right, British version versus American version exactly even mean these days. I think it's up to us to actually define what these words mean before we start using them.
1: Yeah, it's tricky, man. Um, For me as a European, British European coming over to the US, it's particularly, particularly tricky because we're, I think in Europe, we're not so divided based on our politics and specific issues don't, always divide us uh, into our camps. Like, we have Conservatives and we have Labour, which tends to be... Labour tends to be more working class, tends to be. Conservatives tends to be more middle to upper class, tends to be, historically. But when a particular issue comes up, Covid would be, as an example, we don't need to get into the politics of Covid itself, but people weren't split by whether they were Conservative or Mm Labour. It just doesn't happen that way. same... And I think it... I think there's a number of issues we're not split because there's no religious context to our political parties the way there is, say, in the US. So I think those things get a bit tricky. I kind of like your framing, though. It's kind of like, it's almost like uh, you're grouping people together based on their function in society.
0: Yeah, and even their orientation towards how they live their lives, Mm. even outside the realm of politics, right? I mean, let's just take in the corporate class. There's a fundamental difference between the person who runs a human resources department than the person who's tasked with founding the enterprise that led to the birth of that human resources department, or the modal engineer who gets his 401 k plan administered by that human resources department you know, one of those is the everyday citizen, one of those is the creator class, but then the human resources department person is the member of the managerial class. Or, or take a university, right? There's there's the professors, the creators, there's the students, the stakeholders for whom the university exists. And then there's the explosion of the million and a half associate deans of diversity, equity, inclusion, and associate deans of everything else that have actually created this, the fat that comprises that organizational institution. And I just think that the moment we live in, if, if I had to pick, I mean, I don't like reducing things to, you know, you know, one, shoehorning everything into one, you know, unidimensional axis anyway, but if I had to, it would be the distinction between the people who are the members of this managerial class, you know, the same people who become the associate deans or the same people who get some sort of third-tier ambassadorship, who are the same people who are the, you know, deputies, undersecretary of whatever in the U.S. government it's the same kind of gene pool, it's the same sort of class of, you know, orientation of person that comprises this horizontal managerial class. And I think we live in a moment where many everyday citizens are frustrated that their own voice is, is suppressed through the perpetuation of managerial bureaucracy, that you know, is not particularly partisan in nature. I mean, I think it, I think we live in a moment where a lot of that managerial bureaucracy has been used to promote progressive or left-wing agendas, and I think there are reasons for that. But I think it's the less interesting part of the dynamic, which is really one where the people who are the technocratic, bureaucratic managers wield a lot more societal clout and weight and relevance in influencing societal outcomes than everyday citizens i'll call them individuals whose voice and vote were taught is supposed to count equally in a democratic body politic
1: well we at the moment in the uk have a bit of a rise up of the more kind of working class that you're talking about we are experiencing a a period of high levels of strikes
0: i don't know if you're following this in the uk Mm -hmm. only what i see briefly in the papers as reported through the western american press yeah
1: yeah so we've had the nurses striking Mm -hmm. uh and most of the strikes are on wages and conditions. And when they talk about conditions with these companies, it talks usually because some drive for efficiency is making people have to work particularly harder than normal in stressful conditions, or introducing risk into the working environment. But we've had the train driver strike. We've had ambulance driver strike. We've had. Um, the people who,
0: the police, the road strike. The, there are strikes all over the UK at the moment. What are they striking against? See, this is what interests me, because I have a view on this about what's going on in the West right now, but, well, stri- but in your in your particular case, what do you see them striking against? Well, I guess,
1: I mean, you could argue, if you're saying striking, they're striking for more money, but actually they're really striking against inflation because inflation has been so high in the UK, quoted at 10%, probably much higher, mm-hmm. That these people cannot afford to live. I just made a film recently about inflation in the UK. We visited a food bank. I don't know if you have food banks here, but a food bank in the UK, people make donations and then people are hard up who can't you know, feed themselves and their equivalent of welfare doesn't go far enough, uh, can go and get a bag of food to take home and feed their family. And the guy who runs that food bank, when I interviewed him, he said there's a change in demographic. It used to be people who were coming, who were unemployed. Now he said, we've got people being referred to us from the NHS, nurses who work, work full time, but still cannot afford to make ends meet, so they need to survive on donations, which to me is a scandal. But so they're striking against inflation, so they're striking for more money because the cost of living has gone up so much, but also conditions. And then if I think through it, if you're asking me a smart question here, like are you trying to pick into something, because a lot of the problems in, say, the NHS have been caused by bureaucracy. My Mm -hmm. mother worked in the NHS. Middle managers, you know, waste. uh, Just all the people who were brought into these different levels within the NHS that separated decision-makers, these levels of bureaucracy, which
0: became a very inefficient and wasteful system. So, So tell me if this resonates with you from a UK perspective. But I'm increasingly talking about this theme here in the U.S. where I think the top of the next presidential agenda, this is maybe popular more among Republican circles, but I think it's equally it should be equally plausible and viable amongst uh, Democrats. Maybe it will be in a few years, is that we ought to at least live in a society where the people who we elect to run the government are the people who actually run the government, And the bizarre thing in the United States is most of the governmental decisions that actually affect people's lives are not at all made by the people who run the government. It is made by the likes of, you know, whatever. You could think about some of the most influential public policymakers in the U.S. in the last five years. Anthony Fauci, James Comey both make the top list. Nobody elected them to their posts. Now, you say that, okay, well, they report to the president of the United States and we all, of course, elect the president of the United States. It turns out that the president, for much of the managerial class, at least we've operated under what I view as a fiction, but it's a fiction that's widely accepted that the president cannot fire a member of that federal bureaucracy because they're subject to civil service protections. So in the private sector, we don't have civil service, we don't have employee protections, but in the government, if you're a member of the managerial class, most members of the managerial class are statutorily protected I think a lot of these statutes are unconstitutional, but that's my view. We'll come back to that later. But on paper, they're protected by statutory protections that prevent them from getting fired. So my view is that we should replace those statutory protections with sunset clauses instead that say that, you know what, if you're a U.S. president and you can't suckle at the teat of the federal government for more than eight years, then neither should most employees in that federal governmental bureaucracy. That if you are the person who's elected to run the government, you ought to darn well be able to fire the people who report to you. And by the way, if you really want managerial reform, you're gonna have to take a lot of those agencies that can't be reformed from within because they've existed so much longer than you have in a position of power, that you need to shut them down and maybe create new ones to take their place. I mean, that's what the governmental version of this looks like. I don't know how much that resonates for me from a UK perspective, but it's it strikes me that the people who you know Boris Johnson led or whatever were were actually much more relevant in implementing public policy than the person who was you know, the figurehead at the top. Of course, the people didn't vote for the prime minister there the same way that yeah. the, the citizens vote for president here. But curious well, for your thoughts.
1: Well, I just did write down then pr- prime minister, unelected. We actually have an unelected prime minister at the moment. Exactly, yeah, so that's is, a different... Which uh, is cra- crazy, but that's how our parliamentary system works. Um, yeah, I mean, the way I... W- I mean, during the COVID, we had... Our, our uh, version of Anthony Fauci was a guy called Chris Whitty. That's mm-hmm. correct, yeah. Um, was he was he an ex-GSK guy? Don't know. D- Danny can check. Okay, um, okay. Uh, and the way I considered him, he was an advisor to the, the government. Uh-huh. Uh, Boris Johnson would not know the decision to make. He would advise on the situation, and then government public po- uh, government policy would come after that. Um, you would think. You would think, yeah. Um, I mean, I, what does resonate with me in this is that uh, a yeah, slight deviation what you said, uh, the civil service always continues to grow, and they're the hardest people to get rid of. Mm -hmm. It's a cancer. During the uh, COVID uh, lockdowns, lots of people lost their jobs. Companies went bust. Nobody worked for the government lost their job, essentially. I mean, someone might prove me wrong. That resonates with me. And I think I know why this, My Alex Epstein told you to talk to the Bitcoin crowd. And the reason this will resonate uh, with them is not every Bitcoiner is an anarchist. Not every Bitcoiner is a libertarian, but they all recognize there's... Uh, massive inefficiencies in the system, and those massive inefficiencies ultimately cost us as individuals. Uh, we either pay higher tax to pay for the unproductive class, or we pay higher inflation due to mismanagement of the economy, or you know, or, or a wide range of issues. So this this is why it's going to resonate. And we did a really interesting conversation with an economist yesterday. He made me rethink the entire way government works because. We'd made a show in the UK with a guy called Dan Tubb talking about how the UK government essentially needs to cut its budget by a quarter to be able to pay off its debt. And uh, this uh, economist, Josh, said to me yesterday, he said, the government used to run uh, a deficit during times of war to pay for the war. But after the war, they would be able to run a surplus because the only huge, only significant spend was on the war, was on the the cost of the war. And therefore the tax would lead, lead to that uh, being paid off. But since 1945, most governments have become insurance companies. They provide insurance for health. They provide insurance for pensions. They provide insurance, all different types of insurance. And they just, those insurances just grow and grow and grow unchecked. Mm. So I think this is why Alex thinks you want to talk or you should be talking to the Bitcoin crowd because you're saying things that's going to resonate with them.
0: Yeah, I think that um, you know I think mean, the Federal Reserve and the perpetuation of it is a, also also an extension of the managerial class. Uh, I think it is a one way ratchet as well. I think that the once you have added a managerial layer, then it's a lot more difficult to go in the direction of deconstructing it. It's especially true in government. I, I do think it's increasingly true in the private sector as well. One of the interesting things to me, I mean, just because it's been in the news so much recently with the so-called Twitter files is how much of those top policy decisions, I mean, these are foundational questions for the company I and mean, to the existence of the company and its mission were made not by the founder class or the CEO, but actually were made by a deep corporate equivalent to its deep state counterparts, if we're to use this, that terminology. And indeed, it was middle managers in government Coordinating with middle managers at a social media company in Silicon Valley to decide what the public could and could not consume. When the people sitting atop those chains, the president of the United States on one hand, Jack Dorsey on the other, had no idea that this was actually happening beneath their own noses. It's interesting moment where I just think, you know, the same way that you think about at a university. You know, the professors really don't hold the keys to to power at most of elite universities and setting their policies, but it's some sort of hired managerial dean or associate dean that is actually making the decisions of how the place runs. When you know the creator class, be it the you know, founder of a large company that still is, in many cases, running that company, isn't actually running that company, you know, the professors who are supposed to be the ideators who are supposed to be educating the students aren't the ones who actually are making the kinds of decisions that affect the kind of education those kids get. Similarly in government, the people who we elect to run that government, the people who we think you know, the president is the commander in chief, isn't actually making the calls. It is a you know member of the managerial class in the military, a member of the managerial class at the NIH, a member of the managerial class at the FBI that's actually making the decisions that affect the way people live their lives. And I just think I am certainly a part of uh, what I think of as the great uprising that is the response to you know the the vision at the other end of the spectrum, the great reset, the dissolution of boundaries between the public and private sector so that their managerial leaders can work together to accomplish what neither could on its own. I think part of what you're seeing with the strikes in the u k is not that different than what you saw from the truckers in Canada or from last year or what you saw from everyday populists go into the polls here in the United States, or what you see from, you know, folks taken to the streets of Australia, it is a broader reckoning with democratic societies across the West and even, you know, beyond the West. I think versions of this in India and Japan we're seeing early signs of, of everyday constituents, citizens, individuals, rejecting this managerial, technocratic vision of, horizontal layers of managerial leaders calling shots to say that, no, we reject that vision. My voice actually matters. And so I, I, I'm not in, as steeped in the UK context as you, so I gotta be you know careful here about- you know, That's fine. Pr- you know, preaching about more than I know. But it seems to me that the wage discussion against the backdrop of inflation may be as much a catalyst as it was a foundational cause, that the powder keg, you know, there's gunpowder in the air and that might've been the lat, the match that lit this fire, but there was a, any match that was going to be lit was going to light that room up anyway because there's a broader sense of frustration amongst everyday citizens in the West that they've lived in a society that tells them that their voice matters, that their vote matters, that they have a sense of agency when in fact they do not. And to me, that's the line that I draw through, not just the transpartisan issue that i was talking about at, the, at at the outset but i viewed it as a, not just a transpartisan issue but a transnational issue and it might be the most interesting social political struggle of our time is that struggle between the bureaucrat and the individual public and private sector alike
1: so would you say the left versus right is a useful distraction from what you've identified i think
0: it is a distraction I do. Now, I think that we live in a moment where the left has been more effective than the right. I'm talking about just the last 10 years. I mean, there's periods in history where the reverse was true. But I I think it so happens we live in a moment of history where the left has better co-opted the managerial structure to be able to advance the content of its agenda more effectively than the right has. But to me, that's less interesting than whether or not we actually have a debate about what structure in society allows the left and right to adjudicate their differences.
1: Would you say the reason the left has been more successful is because
0: they have a more collectivist approach? Yeah, I I think that it's a great question. I think that if you had to pick on a white sheet of paper, um, which side was going to be more effective, I think at using managerial bureaucracy to, to advance its ends. I guess I would if you had a gun in my head, I would probably say the left would be better at it all else equal precisely because collectivism is part of the philosophy and a bureaucracy exists in an organizational collective. But I could equally make a case to you that the right should have been better at it, because the right believes in people who have money using money to advance their ends. And you know, in the in the Bush era in, in the United States, I think you actually saw the right. Actually, having the keys to the kingdom of the managerial bureaucracy, corporate political donations, the dissolution of boundaries between the public and private sectors, the you know, security state that was created in, in the wake of 9-11. A lot of that was the creation of the right, not the left, but it was the same managerial class. And to me, the much more interesting, much more interesting debate is whether we as a society are one that sorts out the differences between left and right, do we sort them out through free speech and open debate in the public square, through honest dialogue, through a democratic process that we all agree to? Is that, is that how we do it? Or do we do it like they did on your side of the pond 300 years ago, where we say, no, we can't trust everyday citizens to sort out these questions. They just can't be trusted. We have to do it through a small group of managerial elites deciding behind closed doors what the right answers are for society at large, be that right or be that left. Okay. That's a, that's a detail to me. That's a 1776 question, which is far more interesting than the superficial partisanry, you know, of how we, how the media culture teaches us to retrofit these, these, divisions they they shoehorn them into this artificial red versus blue debate when in fact the real deeper debate is what's the mechanism by which we sort out those differences at all and that itself is actually an unsettled question right now it's the most important unsettled question and that's what i think is showing up amongst populists on the left and right being among those that took to the trucker campaign in canada or the people taken to the streets of Australia or even a populist movement in the US that doesn't support the same kinds of of free market, Reaganite economic policies that the Republican Party once did. That's not exactly what the nationalist populist movement in the United States is about right now. And it's what you see in the rift in the Republican Party between the 20 people who are holding up the election of Kevin McCarthy versus not. If you were viewing this through right versus left, you would say, oh, that's just, Dysfunction and people can't get their act together—the kind of boring stuff you see on television on a given day—without understanding the that that's a symptom of a, of a of a deeper divide that does not track the red versus blue boundary, but tracks a very different boundary instead. Mm. And I think I think you even see it in the you know I don't know how many people are aware of this, but there's still this, you know, whatever. Speaking of politics here. A an ongoing election for chair of the Republican National Committee for the RNC. And that's a hotly contested race, too. And again, you have an incumbent that is a representative of the managerial class, and you have a disruptor who says, no, we just need to stop making this a consultant-driven, you know, affair that, you know, pays off whoever needs to be paid off and creates an ossified managerial structure for how you even run that political party. And why do I bring that example up? It's a otherwise rather boring topic that you know ordinary people should not pay attention to or waste their time paying attention to but for the fact that it's an example how even within that political party shows up this same debate between managerialism and individualism and and I think just think that's so much more close to the actual intuitions that move people who are taking to the streets to take to the streets rather than the content of some sort of like republic classical Republican versus Democrat debate, which people have their views on. It might be to motivate them enough to get to the ballot box or to argue at the dinner table, but not to take to the streets. Mm. I think the thing that gets people to the streets right now, and it's happening more and more, is not the debate about, you know, whether or not you believe in more regulation or less regulation or slightly higher taxes or slightly lower taxes or even... You know, or even abortion. You know, I, I mean, barely did it. That's not something that's galvanizing people and in getting to the streets. But people galvanizing people and in getting to the streets is: Do I live in a society that, regardless of what I have to say, value what I actually have to say in deciding how that society is run? Or do I live in a society where I am told the answer to that question, whether it's George Bush and Dick Cheney's security state in the mid-2000s, or whether it's the biosecurity state that was created in the aftermath of COVID? That was the – I think that's – when you talk about people taking to the streets, that's the question that drives people to the streets. Hmm. The rest of them will have them arguing at the dinner table and voting at the ballot box, but that's about it.
1: I mean I would disagree that uh, the – Vote on abortion didn't bring people to the streets. No, I,
0: I, I corrected myself. But it yeah. did temporarily, but it, but, but it, was, but it was fleeting. Yeah. It was fleeting. It, people, it took people mm. to the ballot box. I think it affected, you know, how people voted in the November of election. Of course, cycle. it was very negative but, for the Republicans. But it's not, but it's not that, but you don't see the, the trucker protests, right? You don't see the Canadian trucker protests. You don't see the kind of the yellow, people wearing yellow jackets or whatever yeah. in France coming out. That's a different energy. And it's a different energy because it tracks a more fundamental issue, which is a rules of the road issue. It's a rules of the road issue. I mean, I think free speech falls in this category. By the way, I don't view free speech as a substantive, partisan, political dispute. But again, another one of these fundamental rules of the road. You know, this is what I mean. I, as, as I frequently, you know, said in other forums, when you tell people they cannot speak, that is when they scream. But when you tell people they cannot scream, that is when they tear things down. And again, free speech is not. You know, we live in a moment right now where that is more of a conservative, um, you know, value than a than a liberal one. But that's pretty new. At its core, it is neither a conservative nor a liberal value. It is a foundational cornerstone value of one side of the 1776 question, which is different than the other side of the 1776 question. And I just think we live in a 1776 moment right now, where the kinds of issues that most move us are closer to 1776 questions than they are to contemporary partisan questions. But we haven't yet caught up to that because that feels too weird <laughs> to say out loud, that we sort of pretend like they're just the same kinds of partisan questions that we were debating 10 years ago, when in fact they're not. I think they're the kinds of questions that result in foundational reform, convention of states kind of stuff That that's, you know, was the same the same sort of uh, the same sort of oddity in the water in 1776 to 1789 is the oddity in the water today, and I, I think that's a good thing. By the way, could be the subject of a national revival if we recognize that as opposed to you know, letting MSNBC and other cable television tell us about Republicans and Democrats. Uh, I romanticize a
1: lot of. Uh, American history. Uh, my knowledge is limited, um, but I do romanticize Probably it.
0: Better than mine of British history, but we can we can each teach the other.
1: Yeah, I, I, spent, I spent time kind of reading the Constitution. I spent time kind of studying what the forefathers were trying to do, li, trying to do limited. But my limited understanding is that as a group of people, they tried to plan as best a country that would keep the power in the hands of the people. Mm -hmm. They tried the best, and they tried to foresee as much as they can. Obviously, they couldn't foresee internet and social media, like all this stuff, but they tried their best. And it now seems that uh, you don't have a political class that has the same integrity, or they come in green, and the system changes them. They they can't make change, but they don't have that same integrity. It, It feels more like they become opportunist at spotting how they can bend the system for their benefit. Now, I might be being unfair there.
0: No, I don't think you are.
1: Okay, that's what it that's what it feels like to me. Um, I've noted AOC because it came up in a, one of our interviews recently that whether you like AOC AOC or not. I'm not a huge fan. But I but I agreed with my other guest when they said when she first came on the scene, she was interesting. She would challenge people. She felt like she stood up for her constituents. And it feels like she's been just kind of co-opted by the system. And I don't know if that is the incentives of what you can benefit to yourself or it's the incentives of the system, the horse trading that we see on House of Cars on TV where we learn about the horse trading. I don't know what it is. But when you talk about that, like another 1776 moment, I feel like the US is there. Like you had a civil war before. I feel like you're having a cold civil war. hmm Mm-hmm. I feel like you are.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I don't disagree with you. I, um, I'm i often very careful about using that word just because I think war is one of these things that speaks itself into existence. Well, that's why I say cold civil yeah, war. Yeah, and, and, and I, no, I appreciate that and respect it. And I'm not faulting you for it. I'm just telling yeah. you that I agree with you, even though I'm very careful not to use that word because it's like a, the Heisenberg principle a little bit here. Um, sometimes the way you describe your society actually affects the way that society works, and so I feel some sense of responsibility to, uh, to not contribute to that outcome. But I think that I worry that that may be where we're heading if we don't wake up to uh, some of the causes of our march towards that state of affairs. But- I, I just well, sorry, just to interrupt. I don't feel like
1: America is heading in a, the trajectory of. Uh, a kinetic internal civil war, or oh, guns being drawn. I don't oh, okay, feel like okay. I have okay, well,
0: Maybe maybe, maybe um, I think maybe we're we in different places. Then I, I worry about uh, I don't think we're I don't think we're I don't think we're well on the way. I don't want to see us get there.
1: I just think p- perhaps more a fracturing of the states. Mm-hmm. I think that could potentially happen. Whether it's
0: the blue states up in the north west or it's yeah, Texas. I, worry, I worry that it's not even that because even if you take like a state like California, right? There's almost like Two states within California. I mean, there's yeah. the there's the there's the far coast, and then you just drive like an hour and a half or two inland, and then there's the inner strip that like borders Nevada all yeah. the way down. Those are two different states. Yeah. For people, most people who travel to California don't go to the latter. I recommend people do. It's, it's beautiful. Uh, you know, doesn't have a beach line, but it's beautiful. It, there's a lot of cultural diversity there, but it's very different than the corridor of taking Route 1 from San Francisco all the way down to LA. It's two states within that state. So whether or not it's the states, I think the bad version of this is going something in the direction of Ireland, right, where there's not some clean geographic split or like there was in 1860 between the North and the South. But there's a version of the North and the South that exist within every state, maybe even within every City or many cities or many, many many did you say uh, Ireland? Counties. What's that? Ireland, yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So I'm half Irish. My dad lives in Ireland.
0: Right. So so I'm talking about, I mean, I I don't want to see us go in this direction at all, but where you have two nations that are not at all geographically separated, like not even north versus south, but not even separated by state boundaries, but two nations that exist within close geographic quarters spread over the coast to coast of the United States. I'm an optimist, actually, at my core. I don't think that's where we're going. But I think that that's where we will be going in absence of first identifying the underlying problems with a level of clarity that goes beyond the low resolution filter of partisan politics. But second, without recreating or reviving that shared national identity that bound us together. I mean. What, if, if you ask an average person my age right now, one of my peers, you know, any probably people of any age, what does it mean to be American in the year 2023? How old are you? I don't think you get a good answer to that question. I'm 37 years old.
1: Okay. Hmm.
0: I'm a millennial, right? Yeah. So yes, most millennials, what does it mean to be American in the year 2023? <laughs> I think you mostly get silence. Right? We don't have a good answer to that question. It's a vacuum. It's a black hole. Well, what would the historic answer to that question be? the ideals that set this nation in motion. I believe that I am a free, autonomous individual who's free to achieve anything I ever want in this country with my own hard work and commitment and dedication, regardless of the color of my skin, regardless of my gender, that I can do that, and that I'm free to speak my mind at every step of the way. That's what it means to be American. For example, and I think you can give other versions of that answer, means pursuing excellence unapologetically. It means that I am a participant in determining who leads our country that they report to me rather than the other way around. These are the ideas that set into motion this experiment 250 years ago that we call America. That's what it means to be American. I don't think, I don't think my peers, I don't think our fellow citizens, even people who are older and younger than me today, both can say those things with conviction. And I think if we're able to revive that, our path to avoiding this cold and possibly hot civil war over a Couple, next couple of decades depends on whether we can fill that void of national identity with something that binds us together across these otherwise seemingly irresolvable divides of partisan and identity politics.
1: This show is brought to you by Wasabi, who I will now be using to make sure I keep my Bitcoin private. With the release of Wasabi 2.0, privacy is now effortless as a wallet has introduced privacy by default. Now, rather than having to choose to CoinJoin, this can be done automatically. So you just have to receive your Bitcoin, wait for the CoinJoin, and then you can spend freely. All the magic happens automatically in the background, which is a massive UX improvement, which, you know, that's always something I care about. Now, you do get additional privacy through Tor integration into Wasabi, so you don't leak your IP address. There is also no more minimum denomination, so you can coin join any amount, and there is no change, so any amount you receive from a coin join is private. Now, privacy is something I am definitely taking more seriously, and with the recently released Wasabi 2.0, this becomes so much easier. Now, if you do want to find out more, please head over to wasabiwallet.io, which is W-A-S-A-B-I-W-A-L-L-E-T.io. Next up, we have Gemini who I am using exclusively for buying and selling Bitcoin. But whilst we're at the bottom of a bear market, I'm only buying. We're hodlers, right? We hold through this. Now, I have been using the Gemini app for buying the dips all through this, and I've also set up my DCA with twice monthly buys of Bitcoin. Both the app and the website make buying and selling Bitcoin super easy, and Gemini have invested in building leading industry security since day one. Gemini are also running a special offer for listeners of What Bitcoin Did – all you need to do is head over to Gemini.com forward slash WBD and new customers will get $20 in Bitcoin when they trade over $100 or more on Gemini. Now, if you want to find out more, please head over to Gemini.com forward slash WBD. That is G-E-M-I-N-I.com forward slash WBD. Also today we have Fidelity Investments. Now, one of the most regular emails I receive is people asking how to break into the industry. And Fidelity Investments reach out to me as they are looking to recruit hundreds of digitally native associates to their team to help shape the future of money. Now, Fidelity Investments is a diversified financial services provider with more than $7.2 trillion in client assets under administration and over 1.3 million trades each day. And they have also been pioneers in the Bitcoin mining and asset management space. Now, they started in Bitcoin back in 2014 when they entered the mining space and have continued to grow their team of services ever since. And their in-house fintech incubator is where the teams come up with innovative solutions to bridge the worlds of traditional finance and decentralization. Now, you have the chance to join them and directly impact how they deliver financial services to their customers. And they provide the resources, training, and development to make you successful in this emergent industry. Now, if you want to learn more about this, then please head over to crypto.fidelitycareers.com. Dot com. That is crypto.fidelitycareers.com. But I, I think I think people in Texas would say their kind of identity is what you've just said. I think they still would believe that. But I'm not sure if they'd say it as an American or a Texan. I think that's perhaps one of the issues is this kind of like this, div- this divide that's built up between the left and the right. But the reason I find what you're saying so interesting is... I go back to this example of the nurses. These nurses who are complaining that, you know, they need a pay rise and the hours they're working, et cetera, they're campaigning together for the thing that's going to be the most impactful on the, their life. And they could be from any part of the political spectrum, but that is the thing that's most important to them, and they're working together. And that's why I think what you're saying is super interesting, and I well, that's why I brought up the point, like, is the left-right... A distraction from mm-hmm. this, and then I think, well, the biggest problem you have here is the beneficiaries of this uh, managerial class are the people who get to maintain it. Yeah, you, know, you mentioned the truckers; that was your worker class. They were, you know, they would The whole protest was ended by the managerial class by a couple of ways: controlling the financial system and mm-hmm. controlling the media. So they had the tools. They had the tools to close down the, the revolution, uh, it, you know. Yeah,
0: Yeah, I, I just want to- um, Correct me if anything. No, no I don't correct you. It, it makes me want to supplement what you're saying, because it would be easy for someone who's listening to this to just sort of, now, forget forget the conservative side of me, to sort of say that this is just a re- repetition of Marxist tropes, right? The proletariat, terrible, yeah. you know, versus the bourgeoisie. and don't believe that my definition of being a managerial class versus an everyday citizen particularly tracks onto wealth. Right? That was that was the Marxist trope, right? Was the idea that dollars, green pieces of paper, are effectively what determine which class you in or are, or, or are not in. I think my definition of managerialism includes people who are relatively speaking wealthy and relatively speaking non-wealthy in both compartments. I think it it refers instead to maybe a different hierarchy of cultural class, okay? I think Donald Trump was supposedly a billionaire, probably is, uh, but is not a member of the cultural elite, Uh, is a member, uh, is very much a representative at least, aimed to be, I think, of the everyday citizen. I think at the flip side, you may have really well I'm aimed. I mean, we can we can go there, but I'm making yeah. I make a slightly different point, right? And 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 on the flip side, you could I'm trying to I'm trying to break the dichotomy yeah. that this has anything to do with wealth is what I'm just the point I'm trying to make. Well, on the flip side, you could have somebody who's a I don't know manager of a studio in like Brooklyn, uh, you know, in I don't know, yeah pick your try to pick which would be the most typical neighborhood here in Bushwick or whatever. But that, could that, it even just be a manager of a McDonald's? Yeah, could could be, exactly. That doesn't make a particularly isn't particularly wealthy, but is a member of the managerial class. Anyway, I, mean, I think many associate deans at, at, you know, state universities probably fit this description too, not particularly wealthy or among the highly highest paid Americans, but are still a member of that managerial class. So For me, this is not, it would be easy to mistake as the struggle between the workers and the hardworking people and the billionaire class. That's not how I actually see it. I see the three categories really, creators, the managerial class, and the everyday citizen in all of the economic strata, all skin colors. It's not a black or white thing. It's not a gay or straight thing. It's not a rich or poor thing. And it's not a Republican or Democrat thing.
1: But is the tension between... It's because I said the workers, right? That's Mm -hmm. where you're supplementing. Yeah, I was just just, clarifying, yeah. yeah. Uh, And I don't want to misrepresent you. So are you saying the tension, though, is between the managerial class and the everyday citizen? That's where the tension is? That's where the
0: tension is. That's where the tension is. What is the role of the creator class in this? So the creator class is, I think, a rarer breed that is neither a member of the managerial class nor, in any sense of the word, an everyday citizen. I mean, they're rarer people who are born to create things that did not exist in the world. What is the role of the creator class? I think it can vary over the course of different periods in history. Right now, I think the right call to action for the creator class is to deliver the tools to the everyday citizen to unshackle themselves from the chokehold of the manager, manager of bureaucracy and like the technocrats. Bitcoin. Potentially. Potentially,
1: yeah. So Satoshi was part of the creator class.
0: Absolutely, a member of the creator class.
1: And we have a tool here. I mean, where I think
0: Elon Musk buying Twitter and taking half the managerial ranks out and firing them on the first day is Elon Musk is not an everyday citizen, but nor is he a member of the managerial class. I, I have my own experiences. I mean, I've it could t- you know, it'd be probably boring to talk about my own history, but but I think that I think that that's a, that's just a, a small footnote to the discussion because I think there are and there's a role, a really important role for the people who are fortunate enough to be endowed with the, you know, personal attributes and skill sets and just sort of gall to be creators. Right now, the right call to action is, I think we have this struggle between the managerial class and the everyday citizen. I think creators can liberate the everyday citizen from the managerial class, dismantle managerial bureaucracy, and return us to more distributed forms of power, both in the private sector and public sector. You're talking like a
1: Bitcoiner, distributed systems.
0: Okay. This is why Alex wanted you here. Yeah. Okay, so how do you know
1: which one you're in? Which one am I in?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that you... I think that... uh, Am I in the creator class? I don't know you well enough to say, to be honest. But it seems like you've created this thing that didn't exist in the world, That, but for you it would not exist. I think that's a pretty good litmus test. So I have every reason to think that you may be a member of the creator class. And the point here is not to create a hierarchy between the three. No,
1: no, no. I'm just trying to understand where I am in my role. Like if I am part of the creator class, and if I agreed with your thesis, then I would have a duty to use what I have to dismantle. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm, managerial bureaucracy, yeah. Yeah. Which, by the way, I do agree with. I do think the managerial bureaucracy is different between those working in the civil service and those working within uh, private companies. I think there is a difference. I think within the civil service, uh, you have a lot more job protection um, and you can be a lot more wasteful. And within the, I mean, I, I own my own company. Previous to this, I was the, the CEO of an advertising agency before I did this. So I arguably, I'm part of the managerial class there. But like I knew who didn't perform and I would get rid of them. So I think there is a difference.
0: Well, I, I don't think it comes with the label that comes after your job title and your email signature. Right. But I think, I think it, you know, could you have somebody who works in a human resources department who's not cut out from that managerial class? Absolutely. In fact, I think the woman who runs HR at Strive, I hired her precisely because you could just see it in, in the sort of the cultural DNA. She wasn't cut from that cloth. It turned out that she hadn't actually risen the ranks through human resources anyway, had actual experience in, in you know, being innovative in other spheres of life, but now just happens to enjoy the issues that come up with Human beings and people in an organization—that's great. So I, I, I'm not a big fan of reducing someone based on their title in an org chart or the or the you know okay or or, or the job they happen to have at that given moment. I do think there are correlations, though. I yeah. do think there are correlations, but I think that every person owes it to themselves to be introspective and ask themselves where they best fit in. And by the way, there's a role for managers, right? There's a role for for technocrats. But I think we live in this moment where the technocratic class has overreached. They have been for a variety of historical factors, I think, dating back to the 2008 financial crisis, which coincided with the election of Obama, which had an interesting interaction with each other, which is a whole separate story we can go into. And I've talked about it in Woke Inc., my first book, et cetera. Yeah. But anyway, has led us to a place in our national history where it so happens that the managerial class is wielding far more power than they ought to in an appropriate balance between the roles of what creators contribute versus what technocrats contribute versus what everyday citizens contribute. And I just think that that balance is out of whack. We live in a moment where that balance needs to be restored and it mostly falls on the shoulders of creators to be able to do that right now.
1: Because it's fracturing democracy.
0: Because it's fracturing democracy, it's fracturing social cohesion. I think it is, look, I, I, if I was to summarize this in terms that um, fewer people will get uh, because they're, you know, terms that <laughs> I use, but uh, to summarize this, I think a little bit better, it is, it is the great reset versus the great uprising. Do you know, does the, does the term the great reset mean anything to you? I mean, yeah, well, kind of make form? <laughs> yeah, yeah, fine, fine, fine. It's so, so that- Charles Schwab. Yeah, the, the, the Schwab, yeah, yeah. Schwab worldview, okay. I, on one end of the spectrum, which calls for the dissolution of boundaries between public-private sectors so that leaders can work together to address shared global challenges. That's what Klaus Schraub would say, Mm -hmm. is that government alone is not stepping up to the plate, but neither is capitalism, that leaders must work work together in the mountaintops of Davos to join forces to address these shared global challenges, because that's the vision of the Great Reset. The great uprising basically says hell no to that vision. I will not have that. And I worry that they're on a collision course that actually will leave us with the whole thing burned down. And I think the role for creators is to say that, you know what, we don't need to burn the, inst- sometimes you get, an institution gets so rotten that, that completely uh, dismantling it and replacing it is the only option that's left. But it's not the option I would prefer if we actually addressed the problem sooner, that institutions and their technocrats who were put in their respective positions went back to confining themselves to the scope of what they were supposed to do rather than taking on a far greater role within that organization or a far greater role for that organization within a society than was ever envisioned. So I think it's a little bit of institutional Mm. overreach and technocratic overreach that we need to contain. And if we don't contain it, well, then the great uprising, burning the whole thing down is going to be the only solution that's left. And I don't think that's good. And I think that's why the role of the creator class is to hopefully, you know, achieve deliverance for the everyday citizens who are constrained by managerial overreach before it's too late. And then once it is too late, then I'm going to be part of the great uprising too, to say the only solution left is to burn it down and create something new to take its place. But in the meantime, I hope the, I hope the creator class can rise to the occasion to do what's needed.
1: What is actually at stake here? So you've observed this, and I'm still not entirely clear on the delineation between the managerial class and, and the everyday citizen. But we can come back to that. Yeah. But what is at stake here when, when you look at this and you look at the trajectory of this kind of integration of the World Economic Forum with the government? Um, I th- I think I've read about it. The there's um this has happened with the Trudeau government. I don't know if that was. I can't remember what show was that. with Mark Moss where we covered this. But anyway, by the way, um, what is the trajectory you're seeing and what is at
0: risk? Mm -hmm. What is at risk is the... I'm going to give it to you in an American context. I, I will say the continuation of the American experiment itself. But it's even bigger than that because the stakes matter for the rest of the world too. Okay, the American experiment was more than just about the geographic bounds of this place we call America. It was about a vision for organizing a society where individuals could be trusted to determine and to have an equal stake in determining what the common good was, what the direction of that society was. For better or worse, the existence of a self-governing democratic republic itself, a self-governing constitutional republic, that is what's at stake. What we see today is I think a hollowed out husk of that constitutional republic where we tell ourselves that we live in a tripartite system of checks and balances when in fact, members of that tripartite system of checks and balances are regularly co-opting private companies to do through the back door what they could not get done through the front door under constitutional constraints two prominent examples. One is technology-based censorship. The government can't take down speech that it doesn't want to on the internet. No problem. We're going to delegate it to a private company to do our dirty work instead. That's what's happening at Twitter, Facebook. And we can go into the specific examples, but I think it's now unambiguous that that's exactly what the federal government has been doing. I don't call it big tech censorship anymore. I call it what I believe it is, government tech censorship.
1: And was that happening historically on the Trump scale, or was this purely a Biden administration thing?
0: I think that this is, uh, it's like a hockey stick curve in the last three years, okay? I think a lot of this happened, a lot of this started during COVID at the level of the states and took off dramatically with the Biden administration taking office. But But was it happening under... Trump's government. Well, I think it wasn't happening, maybe not because he didn't want it to happen, but because the private sector leaders who happened to have been in charge were not as amenable to doing it anyway, right? yeah. He convened a group of CEOs at the White House, and what did they do? They disbanded, right? Because they were able to signal virtue at a time when that was culturally popular and the cool thing to do. So... Whether or not Trump did it because of lack of intention or lack of effectiveness is, is a separate debate to be had. But I think the fact of the matter, the effectiveness of this actually working took off astronomically under President Biden. Okay. It actually took off under President Obama, took a break under President Biden, then took off under took off of, under President Biden again. So you mean under a break under Trump? A break under Trump, yep. yeah. I mean, just to give you one example, right? So so after the 2008 financial crisis, and I, and I write about this extensively in Woking, but there's an interesting uh, thing that happened in the Obama administration, which was there was the Tea Party that took control of Congress in 2010, and Obama wanted to actually pass a budget that included federal government money being used to donate money to nonprofits, Right. Well, the Tea Party-led Congress said, no, we're not going to allocate budget money for you, but that's, you know, call it obstructionist, call it what you want. That's constitutional democracy. However, what did the Obama Department of Justice do? And this is, I think, where this trend really started to take off. That's why I'm bringing up this particular example. The Obama Department of Justice had negotiated big-time settlements with, like, Bank of America, J.P. Morgan, you know, a bunch of these financial institutions that had committed bad acts in the lead up to the 2008 financial crisis. So, you know, $7 billion, $10 billion, $13 billion. Goldman Sachs was $5 billion, I think, something like that. Turns out that very little of that money ever got paid to the public FISC, why? Because the Obama Department of Justice reached agreements behind closed doors with those banks to say that for every dollar those banks would give to the nonprofit causes that the Obama administration wanted to fund, but that Congress refused to fund, organizations like the National Urban League or La Raza or a bunch of others, that if the banks made a $1 donation to one of those organizations, that could offset $2 or $3 for money that they didn't have to pay in criminal penalties in the settlements that they had reached with the DOJ. Now if you're a bank this is a good deal. First yeah, of all, first of all less money <laughs> that you have to pay. Second of all, a press release of making a donation to that nonprofit looks a heck of a lot better than a dollar of settlement to the DOJ. And third, by the way, some of these are 501c3 organizations so that's tax deductible anyway. But that's put that to one side. That's another side financial benefit. So banks being fond of money were actually happy to take this trade, but it was it was sort of this devious Sort of this perverted mechanism of the government effectuating a public policy that the three-partite separation of power, balance of power regime said, okay, said no, we're, we're not using public taxpayer money to fund these causes. That you found the government delegating that work to these private parties instead. That that Do we don't just call that a loophole. I don't call it a loophole. I call it a an exploitation of the system, a perversion of the system. It's not a loophole, because I don't even think it was constitutional, right? I, I think this stuff was this stuff was illegal under the constitution, but it happened. And then it became a new norm that then became codified. So then when you get to the Biden administration and the White House that then calls Twitter officials in and says, hey, why haven't you taken down this specific critic of the government? First and last name, let's name one, Alex Berenson, whatever you don't take down that individual. Why haven't you taken them down? And by the way, we're your regulator. And by the way, we're going to break you up and regulate you unless you do the things that we need you to do. Take down hate speech and misinformation as we define it. Take down that individual. Look, this is the stuff that had our founding fathers rolling over in their graves. The first amendment exists. If it exists for one thing, it is to give citizens the freedom to criticize their government. Okay. Well, it turns out that If you tell that citizen that they can't criticize the government, the government isn't doing it directly. They're just using a private company to do it. That's the Obama version of this. And then you see the same thing with COVID policy. And then you see the same thing with, you know, John Kerry. This will be the last example in the litany, but I just want to give you a sense of how ubiquitous this is. The Green New Deal, can't pass it through Congress, no problem. John Kerry, the climate czar, self-appointed climate envoy, self-described climate envoy in the U.S., pressures every major financial institution to sign the climate pledge instead that enter the net zero U.S. banking alliance to effectuate the same goals that they couldn't pass through the front door of Congress. So I do think that this has become ubiquitous. I do think that it has been more prevalent over the last decade under Democratic administrations than Republican ones. But I think Democrats and Republicans ought to be equally concerned because this is not how we live in a constitutional republic. This is a perversion of the rules of the road themselves, and at least let's agree on what the road is. My cars might win might go faster than yours sometimes, and your cars might beat mine in the race sometimes, but at least we agree on the road and I think that that is a that the the, the deeper sociopolitical debates of our time are actually agreeing on the rules of the road themselves rather than on the content of the cars that ride them
1: yeah, so i I can imagine the break under Trump's probably going back to your point you were trying to make with Trump earlier, and that he there's like part of him that's outside of the
0: system, a big part of him, yeah, 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 yeah. and it's
1: like you can. He was ar-
0: never part of the intelligentsia elite. No, he was always an outsider to that.
1: And there's a, there's an argument that he's maybe part of the creator class, maybe, maybe, but but you can see him spanner. But like you can see how, therefore, when he came in, you know, his whole stick was a threat. This managerial class mm-hmm. because he didn't give a fuck, right? Oh, he, he just I mean, didn't give a fuck.
0: That was what the drain the swamp philosophy was all about. Now, as a side note, I do not believe that he was nearly as effective as he should have been, or I would have wanted him to be in actually draining the swamp. Trump did not drain the swamp. No, nope. the swamp drained Trump. Yeah, I think, he, I think a separate. Point. I
1: think he had some personality weaknesses, personally. But like, you think? Really? Yeah. Interesting.
0: I, yeah, saying, I, I I, yeah, well, no, yeah. Like, it's more of a, a an, an ego thing. Like, Yeah, I mean, and, 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 you know, in some ways, I think that's part of what you're seeing even in the rift between the MAGA movement in the United States and Trump himself, because you know, Trump was a great vehicle for advancing that, but he is not the end-all, be-all of it. There is something that lives, a movement that lives... Beyond that, of reviving the American nation that outlives this particular individual. And we're all flawed individuals, right? He was one of, he was one of those flawed individuals. But anyway, the system had an immune system response to him because he uh, was uh, financially empowered and then became politically empowered version of somebody who was, whose sole purpose was to dismantle the managerial class. And I think his heart was in the right place. In trying to do so, he just wasn't effective at doing it, actually, is my net assessment of it.
1: Yeah, I, th- I think that's, that's a pretty fair assessment. Danny, I've, I feel like you were looking for receipts on that Obama thing. I mean, I was looking through a few things, but it's all there. It's all there. Mm-hmm. Amazing.
0: I mean, I wrote a book on this stuff, so it, it better be there. <laughs> I'd be embarrassed. <laughs> is but, that uh, the Woking book or a separate Woking book? Woking was the first, yeah. Yeah.
1: So what is the answer then? Like, what are you... You know, you, you're very good at outlining what the issue is. I'm on board. I'm completely on board. I understand it. And I do believe the left v right is a distraction. And I do believe the people who control the media control the left v right. I agree with you. uh, Fight. And they keep us distracted and fight with each other. I don't feel like a conspiracy theorist saying that. But I think it's more of a US problem than a UK problem. We don't really have this problem in the same way. Is this? Yeah, I think you don't. And, and as as we were
0: having this conversation, this is really interesting to me. Um, do you know what you Do you know why I don't think we have it? You you go first, and I'll tell you my insight. I think, but you, I want to make sure I'm hearing you correctly. I mean, there's a couple of
1: couple of reasons. My primary reason. I'll let Danny answer as well on this one because yeah, he's from the UK as well. But we don't have left v right media. Oh, interesting. In the same way you don't. Yeah, we don't really have conservative TV channels or Laboured CV channels. And do you know what? With someone like the BBC. Everyone kind of gets a fair fair go. And I do believe, like, our journalism is a little bit more investigative in the mainstream, not the independents. And so, I don't feel like we're being... I don't believe we're being sent propaganda to separate us to sell advertising. I just don't believe that's happening like it is in the US, which, like, I put the majority of this down to the media. Who, Like, where are the incentives? Who's incentivized to divide us? Well, it's Fox News and MSNBC, so they can sell their advertising. I mean, they, you
0: know... Okay, so that's one explanation. Yeah. It's interesting. I'll ponder that. Yeah.
1: How, what do you think, it? I definitely agree on the media thing. I think our media is way less partisan. Um, I think this is a massive generalization. It could be totally wrong. I think we're
0: also slightly less opinionated and slightly less confrontational. Uh, yeah, with- just by nature. I think, I think that's a big factor, too. And that... That related to the point Are I was Are you saying we're make. more civilized? <laughs> more civil. <laughs> more yes, civil. more civil. Civil and civilized maybe can be very different things. Yeah. Uh, really. I, you know, I think um, and, and, and an American and a Brit would see which one was civilized differently, maybe. But I think that that, that touches on a cultural difference, too, is in the American context. Maybe, maybe you'll be upset at me for saying this, and I'm just spouting off here, too. I need to think about that. I'm not that nationalist. Okay. But, but. You know, and I'm not committing myself to this view right now. I'm just thinking out loud. But I think there's there's like a there's a special betrayal about it in the American context, which is that in some ways you guys. I'm saying this jokingly, but you guys were always at your at your historical roots and core, the OGs of the monarchical model. Anyway, right? That was part of the Western European model of social governance, until the American Revolution that then spread back to the French Revolution that then gave rise to this idea of constitutional self-governing democratic republics, like it was you guys copying us, if I may say it that way, that here, when we then resort back to the monarchical model, the aristocratic model of managerialism, it feels like an even deeper betrayal of what the thing even is. Whereas there, it feels like you're just shedding the skin that you happen to have worn for 250 years. You've also been along for a lot longer, right? So this could just be a temporary blip in history. And it's like, ah, okay, you know, we did that constitutional self-governing democracy thing. But, hey, we did the other thing for a lot longer. And so maybe that little trend passed. And, uh, you know, okay, it's one thing versus the other. And you'll have some people who are upset about it in the present time. But it's against a historical backdrop that's much, much longer, much older. It's a deeper rich history that goes much further back than this nation's does. You know, I'm putting aside the Native American predecessors to the US or whatever, but the U- America as we know it. Whereas in America, that's all we've ever known. In fact, the whole premise was that project. <laughs> and so when we start behaving the other way, it's a betrayal of the existence of the whole project. So in a certain sense, it's existential for the idea of American culture in a way that it's not existential for the idea of British culture, because British culture includes so much more history than this modern blip of democratic self-governance. In fact, if anything, the latter is the is the anomaly <laughs> to the longer arc of the history of British culture. Hold on, sorry. so
1: are you basically saying we have culture outside of politics, but the establishment of your state is, a, is the bedrock of your culture? Yeah,
0: I, I just- That I, makes I, sense I, to me. Y- yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I, what, what you are thinking when you say that is exactly what I'm saying too. I would phrase it slightly differently, but yes. How would you if, phrase it, so I- I would say that Maybe to make it this very simple, I would say that monarchy is part of British culture. I mean, it's kind of culturally, right now, I mean, if you think about the passing of the queen, how much that reawakened British national identity it was tapping into something dormant. But just look at most of British history. It's been run under a monarchy. Hasn't for the last, you know, seven decades or eight decades, seven decades, you know, under where the political power was mostly wielded. But that was the anomaly and maybe that became the new norm, but if that stops being the new norm and you go back to centralized technocracy, elite, enlightened managerial leaders going back to wielding power that drains the voice of the everyday citizen, it doesn't feel like there's much at, as much at stake because you may just be reverting back to what the essence was. Whereas here, the whole essence, the whole darn ball game, was based on the idea of rejecting that. Like that's the entire American identity was born on the idea of unshackling ourselves from centralized, aristocratic, monarchical exercise of power over the everyday citizen to say that the person who's in charge reports to me rather than the other way around. So when we start behaving the other way, the whole identity is
1: gone. There are Bitcoiners, very well-known, prominent Bitcoiners. Who actually would argue for a return to a monarchy over democracy? They would say democracy has has failed, um, probably for similar reasons that you're pointing out. That yeah, managerial
0: class. I understand that argument. But I do. I do. The uh, reason
1: they prefer a monarchy is that you've democracy can create a mob, right? Yeah. Whereas, like, you've essentially got an individual right. who has to keep the country happy, and if they don't, you have a revolution.
0: That's right. That's right. So, so. so I get that, and I am I'm deeply but it But it sort of gets it. So all I would say is I, when I'm using the word democracy now, let's get one more level specific, which is I'm using it. There's two sense of democracy. Yeah. Actually, America was born not as a democracy but as a constitutional republic. Yeah, and I've so been trying as much I as I can to use that term here, but it's a little bit of a mouthful. But there's a big distinction. So I, I, I think that America was purposefully not born in the image of a direct democracy, because direct democracy can lead to the tyranny of the same form that I'm using shorthand monarchy for. And you can actually have a version of the Austro-Hungarian monarchy that actually looks very different than... The no, I the I get corrected but, on but, this all the time. But, 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 but broadly speaking, I think we get each other and what we're saying. When I say democracy, I mean the ability to vote. Yeah, 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 yeah. The ability the ability to have, yeah, exactly, a stake in determining who the leaders of the country really are. Now, I, I, I'm a... Um, Maybe you should just try a king. See how you get on, just see <laughs> no, what happens. Well, <laughs> well, it might be this well but, but it wouldn't be America itself. It, 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 might be, it might be something else, but it's not gonna be America. In Britain, it can still be Britain. Here, it, just, it just wouldn't be America, right? <laughs> It'd be something else, It'd be something totally different. But, that, but that's why it strikes a different valence here than it does over there, is that the whole dang thing. And so what's the solution you are asking earlier? I think it is a revival of shared American identity at a moment where we lack one. And I think that that could go a long way from a different angle too, right? Speaking from my millennial seat again. Like our generation is very hungry for a cause, for purpose, for identity. We we just hunger for these things. We suffer from widespread depression and anxiety and insecurity and loneliness. We flock to secular religions like wokeism or transgenderism or climatism or COVIDism or whatever it is, because we're hungry for a deeper purpose. And we serially hunt from one to the next, not knowing what we're even searching for. And I personally think part of what we hunger for is a nation, is that nation. And a revival of that nation built around the unapologetic pursuit of excellence, that's how I frame it. That was my, what my second book was all about. But maybe somebody else can frame it differently. But reviving that national identity and filling that hole, that vacuum, should be the our calling. I think it should be the calling of the GOP, because the GOP is itself as a party in search of an identity, so it might as well be this. But. I think if we can fill that generational hunger for purpose and meaning and identity and move beyond this mistaken decade of celebrating our diversity, I I think we've become very smitten with that over the last decade. I think our diversity is completely meaningless if there's nothing greater that binds us together across that diversity, or else we're nothing more than this group of different-looking higher mammals roaming a common geographic terrain doing what our smartphone told us to do on a given day. That's not the American idea, right? American idea is that there's a set of ideals that bind us together across our different demographic and genetic attributes. Reviving that, both through the market, and that's a big part of why I founded Strive, is I think Strive can serve as a unifying force in capital markets, in the economy, in corporate America through the message that we deliver to focus on excellence over politics. And I can you know, tell you all about that, but that's that I think part of those solutions can come through the market. But I think part of it can come through and ought to come through our politics as well, possibly through the revival of a new conservative movement. And it doesn't have to be a conservative movement, a new pro-American movement whose goal is to fill that missing vacuum of American identity. And I think there's an opportunity to do that. And hopefully the next 24 months are all about that with, uh, with the season that we have coming up in this country.
1: This show is brought to you by BitCasino. Established in 2013, BitCasino was the first licensed Bitcoin casino, and they are trusted by tens of thousands of players worldwide. Not only do they have cutting-edge security, but they also have fast withdrawals and VIP experiences that money can't buy. With over 2,800 games and tournaments to compete against each other and 24 7 live chat support, Bit Casino is the best Bitcoin casino that you can go to. Now, if you want to find out more about Bit Casino, the first Bitcoin casino to win an EGR award, head over to bitcasino.io, which is B I T C A S I N O.io. And please remember to gamble responsibly. Next up, we have Leaden. Now, from savings accounts to personal loans and even mortgages, Ledin's financial services enable Bitcoiners to experience the benefits of their holdings today without selling their Bitcoin. Ledin only supports Bitcoin and USDC, two of the highest quality and most liquid assets in the industry. They are also dedicated to transparency and are the first digital asset lending company to complete a proof of reserves attestation, which they will re-verify every six months. With multilingual support on standby 24-7, Ledden is there to support all your needs, and not only a Ledden sponsor, I am also a customer of theirs too. Now, if you want to find out more, please head over to Ledden.io, which is L-E-D-N.io. Also, today we have Ledger. Now, recent events have highlighted just how important self custody is, and Ledger is the smartest and easiest way for you to take control of your Bitcoin. And the world's most popular hardware wallet just got better. Ledger have recently announced the launch of their Nano S Plus. The larger screen makes it easier to manage and verify your Bitcoin transactions. And the Nano S Plus maintains the same high level of security as all other Ledger products. Now, I have been a Ledger customer since early 2017, before I even started this podcast. And I absolutely love the S Plus. If you want to find out more and purchase a hardware wallet from Ledger, then please head over to shop.ledger.com, which is S-H-O-P dot dot com. What if you're wrong, Vivek? So, what if there is a... What if this push and pull at the moment is... uh, One, like, a a part that's pulling back towards traditional historic American values that were built out of the Constitution, or 1776. And what if the other side is a pull towards more kind of... How would I put it? Um... European kind of ideals and values. It's because, a great
0: framing, actually.
1: And, and the reason I ask this, because... It, yeah, I'm sure, Danny, we saw a poll once where it was like... America's pretty much kind of 50-50. Let's say 50-50 re- Republican-Democratic. I know it's not exactly, just for the sake of this. But if the world was to vote, whether they're Republican-Democratic, it was largely swayed towards the Democratic side. I cannot remember where I saw this. Like, if you suddenly imported 70 million uh, British people into America and they were voting, it wouldn't be a 50-50. It wouldn't even be close. The majority would be voting Democrat. Because even on... This is why I made that joke to you. At the very start, uh, I'm a centre-right in the UK and the people here think I'm a woke liberal. Mm -hmm. Because... We're less, we're less extreme, but we're very different. But perhaps there is this kind of old-world traditional American values, which feels very Republican, and there's this new world, rest-of-the-world values, which is being pulled towards. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, I don't I think, know if I've articulated it well. I think you're absolutely describing the struggle in the United States right now is pull towards 1776... Pull towards traditional European model. That's what's at issue. That that's exactly it. I see. By the way, this that's exactly it. that. That was that was the push and pull at the American Revolution. It was yeah. fought through through you a want war. Us, you want us back? It, well, I don't. But we've but got a king. We can bring him yeah, back. Yeah, I, I don't. I don't. I don't want that. But but other but other people <coughs> seem to. And that that and, and, it, and it's not a Republican yeah. Democrat thing quite. But but, but there's correlation. So I, so I grant you that. But that is the struggle, and I am in the camp of saying I don't want to. America to go in the direction of just becoming another nation in what otherwise is the normal arc of human history, which raises this question of a word that you hear bandied about from time to time, American exceptionalism. What does that mean? It refers to the way in which America is an exception to that general rule of certainly, you know, Western uh, and probably global human social societal structuring. American exceptionalism refers to the fact that we take exception to that. I believe in that. And so this is just a local question where maybe you have a more, um, you know, maybe even more, a higher perch than I do because I'm mired in this parochially nationalistic uh, framing of the discussion because I'm American and that happens to be the thing I care about. You're right. If If you zoom out and looked at this from like Mars and then we're analyzing this, you know, unique region across time and space, you you're right. There's this just tug of war between for the soul of a nation is it the 1776 version or is it the you know 7 the 16th century version or the fifth or the 17th century version that is more representative of what existed for a lot longer of time in the cultural predecessor even the linguistic predecessor of the United States. It just so happens that I'm I'm in one of those camps.
1: But the interesting thing yeah. is, where I've told you where I probably sit on the uh, political spectrum I want your version to maintain. And the reason I want your version to maintain is I romanticize about the history of America and American values. Uh, I'm not a huge, I've come to not be a huge fan of globalization. And I think there may be a lens I think I've got the first one of my shows you should listen to, so. I'll take a look. We made a, you know which one I'm gonna say, Gladstein. I made a show with a guy called Alex Gladstein from the Human Rights Foundation. He did a study into the role of the IMF and the World Bank.
0: Can and I write that down? Just so yeah, can... yeah. Oh,
1: no, no, we'll send you a link. Like, Danny, okay, will do yeah, it. Danny will find it for you. We'll send you that. He's wrote a paper and we made a podcast about it. And uh, historically, the Europeans uh, uh, left an imperialist imprint on the world as they sailed sailed the seas and conquered nations um, and essentially stole resources. The American version of that has essentially been an economic imperialism, whereby the use of things such as the World Bank and the IMF have essentially forced or changed countries. Uh, the great example he gave, was it Bangladesh? Yeah. He said, just as an example, go to Bangladesh, lend them lots of money, they get into debt. Uh, and, and, and the IMF and the, the, the World Bank, historically, they've they've tended to go to nations where it's easy to kind of, give people money or take it. This is your managerial class, by the way. Mm-hmm. And some in Bangladesh, what they would get them to do is to farm shrimp. This is economically successful. You can farm lots of shrimp, you can sell it around the world. But the problem is the shrimp isn't being sold back into the Bangladeshis. And so what's tended to happen, these nations have become dependent on the dollar, they've become dependent on debt, and this is allowed America and, you know, other European nations to maintain their rich... ...successful, expensive. The lifestyles we get to live are based on the resources being extracted from the developing world or poorer nations. Mm-hmm. That is your managerial class that's created that. And, and that part of... There, there might be a connection there for, in, with the story you're trying to tell in why this has happened. You know, it might come internally from Very the Very interesting, yeah. So, I I think you would really enjoy that. I think I would, too. Yeah. yeah, and I think that might be the connection that's caused this. So, I think for America to be able to return to its traditional values, I think it has to return to its history of building its own economic success within its own boundaries, with its own manufacturing, you know, something it's got away from. Mm-hmm.
0: You know, I, um, I get to the same conclusion increasingly, but for a slightly different reason. It changes the topic a little bit, but it actually is, a, is an interesting bridge to go there because there's, there's much more to say about what you just brought up. But, but anyway, I, I actually get there from a national security perspective. Um, I, actually think that, I actually think that the necessity of defeating China, both economically and militarily, or or I should more precisely say economically so that we don't have to militarily, which I think is the far preferable way for this to play out, leads to that same place, not out of some sort of economically protectionist or even culturally protectionist motivation, but just out of a national security uh, existential vantage point. And, you know, I think an interesting thing about this, you know, defeating China question is the major difference that the US faces right now, it's a challenge. I think this is one of the complex challenges of public policymaking in the United States of foreign policy right now in this unique moment we live in is unlike the Cold War of the 20th century, where the US defeated a mighty rival in the USSR, we never relied on the USSR to provide the shoes on our feet and the phones in our pockets. And I think today, we do rely on our arch rival, dare I say, enemy for providing the shoes on our feet and the phones in our pockets.
1: But that is that is a bilateral relationship. They rely on you.
0: Yeah, but, but one was far ahead of the other and used that to be able to make itself appear from a vantage point where it began nowhere near that pier. Of course, yeah. At the time of the, of the fall of the union. Yes, yeah, so, so, so that was exactly... <laughs> That's already a win for, for China, right? Now it's a, to potentially even surpass and be in a position of greater um, global authority. But you know, I think the first stop Xi Jinping wants to get to is to an unambiguously uh, non-unipolar but bipolar global order, right? And so that's destination number one. Destination number two will be to recreate a unipolar world in which China is the center of gravity of that unipolar world rather than the United States. But I am... <laughs> perhaps optimistically from a US standpoint, not yet conceding that we are yet at a stable equilibrium of a bipolar world order, but in China's march, the seemingly in. inexorable march towards that new stable equilibrium, part of what got them there was kind of like Greece with Troy, delivering a Trojan horse that they knew we could not resist, which was the Trojan horse of capitalism itself, global capitalism in air quotes capitalism in air quotes, because they were really pulling mercantilist strings from behind the scenes, but it deluding us into thinking that it was capitalism, much as, you know, Greece deluded Troy into thinking that it actually was just a beautiful Trojan horse, when in fact, there were a lot of other agendas at work that, you know, did their work once global capitalism had become the vector for delivering it. So I think anyway, the complicated challenge for the United States right now is how do we defeat an enemy that we depend on? to power our modern way of life. And I think that the short answer is that's going to, if we're going to do it, involve the pain of ripping off a Band-Aid, of incurring some short-term economic cost in order to protect ourselves against existential long-run risk. I mean, I think semiconductor self-reliance is a big part of that. That's going to take a long time to get there. I mean, those are the chips that power the phones, mm-hmm. the laptops we use that power the cameras that are recording this conversation. Leading edge semiconductors come from Taiwan. We're going to have to protect Taiwan from invasion until we build up our semiconductor production capabilities here in the United States. It is shameful that we got this far <laughs> to have relied on a random island in the middle of the South China Sea to power our entire modern way of life for the refrigerator that kept this. Can of water cold before you kindly brought it out for me here is probably powered. I'm looking at it right now. I can tell it's the kind of refrigerator, probably powered by an advanced semiconductor. Those aren't made here. Those are made in Taiwan. But anyway, my reason why I bring that up is I think it's just as a national security matter. It's table stakes for us getting there to be able to make more of those things here. And then, and then I'm 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 a little less. M- So then, like many of my friends on the populist right, um, you know, the Josh Hawley, you know, J.D. Vance kind of crowd, you know, who would also just believe we need to do that for sense of American pride and economic, you know, protection of workers. I I don't begrudge those benefits, but I think the main motivation for me to support those same policies is just our national security agenda vis-a-vis China. Um, but but all to say that these things aren't necessarily separable from one another. They they go hand in hand together. And there, I think you have, you know, two prongs of a policy agenda that can lead to that national... Actually, we've talked about three of them. <laughs> we talked about restoring free speech. We talked about dismantling the managerial class. We talked about defeating China economically so that we don't have to militarily. And I could go on for hours about that, including my views on what that means for energy policy in this country. And then the fourth element that I would just add to that list, and then we've covered a a lot of policy bases, is embracing merit in this country. It's actually an important value of our national identity, an important competitive advantage, even vis-a-vis China and other countries that we've lost in this country, embracing merit over identity politics, eviscerating affirmative action in every sphere of American life, restoring the idea that you advance in this country based not on the color of your skin, but on the content of your character and contributions to me we're we're 80% of the way there on on an american revival on a revival of that national identity that we're missing actualizing it through policy in ways that change people's lives if i was to give it to you in order probably defeat china dismantle the managerial class restore free speech and embrace merit over identity politics i think we're in pretty good shape so i'm an optimist that this can be done yeah, but it needs to be done uh, merit itself is a little tricky of course it is of because course
1: it is. because <laughs> Uh, like, I'm with you on the idea that some forms of affirmative action actually introduce a form of
0: reverse discrimination, which, yeah. Which then create original discrimination in response. I mean, it's anti, yeah. anti-white racism, anti-Asian racism, but then it spawns anti-black racism in response. I think this is an important discussion.
1: Actually. Yeah. Uh, and I will be out of my depth here. Okay. But I but I do feel, this is why the term, the co-opting of the term woke bothers me, because the Original definition of woke was, you know, awake to social injustice. Social injustice does happen.
0: It's becoming alert to invi- yeah. otherwise invisible injustices. That was the.
1: And it bothers me that it's been co opted to be a pejorative, you know, in divisive, polarized, lefty right issues. Because I think social injustice is something important. We do live in a society. And if you want national identity, you think national identity is important, then there should be funding to. Uh, Create better opportunities in neighborhoods that are uh, less well serviced, that help kids who are from you know, damaged neighborhoods or. Or fix the neighborhoods.
0: damaged neighborhoods themselves. Yeah. Or, or you know, like... A uh, failed public school system that perpetuates a cycle of kids becoming growing up in that damaged neighborhood.
1: I I, I believe in coordinating society. I, I'm not an anarchist. I, I I
0: think social justice is important. And so I. Can I ask you a question? Yeah. Just for, since we're using the words. How is social justice different from justice to you? Because I definitely care about justice. Well, ju- just, social justice—I just, don't know what it means. Just, justice uh, for me is the rule of law.
1: Itself is completely fucked at times, but uh, justice to me is the rule of law. Here, here are the laws. Justice should be served. And justice If I come into your house and I steal your car, I should be arrested. Like, like you've had a breakdown of justice in San Francisco, where people are just walking into stores and robbing mm-hmm. them. And they're not being arrested, and so they're being. They've, they've been told you can steal and it's okay, which is damaging and dangerous for businesses. That and is. I'm, that I'm is so glad you
0: brought up that example uh, because that is a break that system. is social justice though in conflict with justice. No, it's, I to, mean, the to entire me... social justice agenda is predicated on the idea that actually those that distribution of property was sufficiently unjust that it's not worth society prosecuting. Crimes for stealing something worth less than $900, especially if you're a certain race.
1: Yeah, but to me, that's poor. That's a poor... Okay. It's a good example. But it's, but a, it's, perversion it's of, a perversion. It's a perversion. And look, I can give you in the justice system, I can give you poor examples of justice. I'm I'm in litigation at the moment in the UK, in the UK for tweeting words. Okay? I'm in litigation for hmm. libel. I think, and and I've been through a process, which I think is not delivering a good form of justice. I think it's poor justice. So you can, you, it's justice or social justice, injustice, you can have them both. But for me, justice is the rule of law, okay? Looking at ideas of social justice, to me, is more kind of uh, avoiding any forms of discrimination, or if there has been any form of, like, historical unfairness, you do something to try and balance things. It's not black v. white. It's not... I mean, gender's a great example. I ha- I have a daughter. The world is undoubtedly harder for her. Like, anyone who says it isn't, it just is. The w- I, I'm a man who's worked in the workplace. I've seen the differences how men work together and do deals and drink in the bar afterwards. I've seen how it's harder for a woman in those environments. I've seen how women are spoken to. Like, anyone who says that doesn't happen, it, it, it does. But, like, that does If she
0: happen. was two, my prediction is by the time she's in the workforce, it's actually it's actually 180 in the other direction, but, but, but maybe, but much of the the last 20 years, you're probably right.
1: But, but, but it's the fact that society has moved forward. The society has recognized and made certain things socially unacceptable. Yeah. And, and, you know, this better treat, like it was a man's world, like the forefathers, they were fathers, like Mm -hmm. they weren't foremothers. Like how many people were in in 1776, how many women were making those decisions?
0: No, I, So, so here's, here's where I am here's where I'm on the set of issues. You're saying important things. But but they're things we obviously recognize.
1: Yeah, but what I'm saying is is those ideas now of trying to create a better and fairer world from a place of that wasn't fair and a place of injustice, social injustice, has now become a pejorative. And I just find that disappointing.
0: Well, here, can I offer you a theory as to why? I think the flag bearers of that movement need to pre-specify at what point they're done. Because it's not 1776 anymore. It's not 1960 pre-Civil Rights Act America anymore. I think that the question of when we are going to stop looking in the rearview mirror has to be pre-specified ex ante or else we're going to, two centuries from now, we're still gonna be saying the same thing that you just said. Yes, the nation began imperfectly. Yes, we have made, I think, meaningful, (laughs) fundamental changes in the structure of a society that correct for those injustices. And at some point, it's never going to be perfect. We need to decide we're going to move on. And I think that we are long past that place because I'll give you, uh, for, for the social justice ends being self-defeating in their own right, here's what I mean. I'll give you a, give you a psychological analogy, uh, which is, you know, let's say you're a psychiatrist and you have a patient who comes in and used to suffer from severe anxiety, but now just suffers from, like, really mild latent anxiety that barely ever shows up, okay? But occasionally he shows up because he's feeling a little anxious, the last thing you probably want to do is to shout at that person, don't be anxious, don't be anxious, don't be anxious and to scold them, okay? I make an analogy to where I see of the role of racism in a society too. I'm not in the camp of the anti-woke crowd that rejects the idea that there is still widespread racism in the United States. I'm just in the camp of believing that that widespread racism is really, 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 really small in magnitude, non-zero, but small in magnitude. And I think once you've gotten to a certain point, the right approach is to just let it atrophy slowly to irrelevance rather than to scream at the person like the psychiatrist did at the anxious person. don't be racist, don't be racist, don't be racist, yeah, but uh, we inflame the whole thing.
1: You're missing the nuance here, and this is what I think Please. is important um i'm I'm with you this I think some of the attempts to create new social justice is fucking ridiculous like like, where
0: are you in race-based affirmative action? Let's get to the meat of the matter.
1: Um, so what I would say is, like, let's look at the statistics. In America, are you more likely to end up in jail if you're black. If it's yes, okay, why? It's because of these certain neighborhoods and opportunity. Okay, why? What are the reasons that's happening? Like, historical yeah, reasons. Okay, invest in those areas and support those communities and try and change them.
0: Great. That's different than using but, race-based quota systems, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm totally with that. But at the same time, when I yeah, you know, when I ran my advertising agency, I brought a woman onto the board. And that was when I did that, it was a you know, it wasn't merit-based. She hadn't earned that position. But we had a male-dominated board of four men in a company that I've told this story before, by the way. That, uh, that was probably 30, 40% women. Okay. So I brought her onto the board. We discovered things about things in the toilets that weren't being done in the women's toilets that, that they required. We also discovered that, actually, when we have a uh, work night out, the girls feel unsafe getting home, so we implemented putting in taxis in place for the women to get home. Yeah, it's, it's a fucking sad example of this, but one of the ladies we were that ended up getting murdered, not when she worked for us a few years later. A young girl called Sarah Everard, you can look her up. Hmm. She worked for me, and we, we put that in place. She was murdered walking home during the COVID era. So, like, we learned those things by making that affirmative action, by putting that person in that seat. And that was a good thing. Like, I don't feel guilty about that in any way at all. I think the important thing is, is that people, we need more, you know what? We need better leaders with more nuance. That's what it is for me. We don't need Tucker fucking Carlson and whoever it is on the other side, just always dividing people and arguing. We need the nuance. Okay, is there an injustice here? Yes, there's, there's, how can we deal with it? How can we invest? How can we improve where this injustice is? And then, then let's have some nuance in there. Yeah, it is a bit weird that, you know, that we're, we're allowing children not to be able to maybe have a... No, I'll give you a better example. Matt Walsh made a, a film about uh, what is a woman. I'm sure you've seen
0: it. I actually haven't seen it, but I'm familiar with it. I'm familiar with it. Yeah, I've seen clips. It's half
1: brilliant. And do you know why it's half not brilliant? is all I wanted in that was him to sit down with somebody who's under, suffering from gender dysphoria and just say, what is going on here? Help me understand
0: both sides of this. Yeah, so here's, here's this is a very interesting discussion to me, the both sides of this, right, in the nuance. I'm a fan of that. and In some ways, I feel like my own, at times I catch myself losing my own ability or uh, even interest in engaging in that nuance because I'm interested in getting to a state of the world that sometimes I feel like will make me less competitively advantaged to do that if I'm encumbered by that nuance along the way. So I need, I, I welcome folks like you calling me out on that along the way because that's not what I want from myself. But I'll tell you, uh, I'll tell you this. I think there's a false parody, parody, parity, parity, p a r i t y that we have created between the both sides. I'll give you the gender dysphoria example, and then I'll give you the race example because they tie together, okay? Gender dysphoria is real. It exists. For the few people who have it and have had it for much of human history, it is a source of suffering. It is a medical condition. It deserves empathy. That is a tiny fraction of all human beings ever born, but they exist. There are people born without the ability to use their legs. There are people who are paraplegic, quadriplegic. These are rare situations, each of which demand their own forms of sympathy, empathy, care, and attention. What we have instead created is a culture that believes that we have to change fundamental social order to accommodate what is really a far rarer event and in the process, create more of the problem itself. So if you teach a kid to doubt their gender identity at a young age, you are likely to create more gender dysphoria. Do I believe that the rise in gender dysphoria in America is actually just nothing more than the uncovering of a phenomenon that was always there? or do I believe that it is a phenomenon that we have created by teaching kids to doubt their actual gender identity? I think it is much more the latter than it is the former. I think, I think it's- more- I think it is much more the latter. Than, I, 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 this, and you don't know how, when you have a kid that comes out in a given classroom, there's good data on this. The epidemiology on this, okay? It's, it, it spreads, It spreads faster than COVID. The R-squared is faster than the R-squared for COVID in schools of a kid who identifies or self-identifies as trans for the number of other kids in that same perimeter, it's almost like modelable, like an infectious, like like an R squared for COVID. You'll see other kids pop up at a rate that completely defy the possibility of what gender dysphoria could actually have looked like. And I think that we're creating it in the same way that I brought up in the race context where I'm not one of these people that rejects the idea. I actually kind of agree with like Robin D'Angelo's presupposition that all of us probably have native impulses that are just hardwired into us because we're human beings like evolved from apes to come to where we with tribal instincts of our own that have hardwired judgments that may be among others, race-based that we might as well be aware of, but at a certain level, at a certain point, there was this time in our history where that demanded a comprehensive societal response. But once you've kind of cleared the virus below the level of detection, when you try to still mount a comprehensive immune response, you kill the host. And I think that's what we're doing. With the trans obsession, with the racial obsession, we are killing the host in the process of killing a virus that was already mostly gone. And I think that that's where the the yes, you have to look at both sides of this problem is a bit of a siren song when it's like ninety nine percent the way there, but it's really just the one percent that you treat as though it was a fifty percent problem that we actually recreate a one hundred percent problem across the board. Yeah, and that's where I'm at on it. I'm
1: I'm going to leave you with one thing. And we're gonna uh, we, we're gonna need to follow up on this. I, I, I think you going to need to spend some time looking at the money. And I'm going to send you some things, hopefully read and look into why we as Bitcoiners care about this. We Bitcoiners don't care about, once you've gone down this hole. we don't care about the ability to just be able to put our money into this funny money and it's suddenly worth more. We care about why the money is broken and what the impact on society has been. I actually don't fundamentally disagree with you. I don't think on, you do, yeah. On, on On the trans thing. I actually don't. But why? My thing is, why has this happened? You know, we've gone from a world where one income would pay for a family home and two kids and a car, and a mum would stay home with the family. We're now at a place where two incomes maybe not even pay for one home. Like, the money has been perversed. We have kids now, like, broken homes, kids who are on the internet, seeing all kinds of weird shit. I think it's more of a fracturing of society the massive availability of drugs that kids don't need. Like, we fucked with our kids, and they're looking for identity. And then perhaps that's where that's come from. I think it's a very complicated picture. I don't disagree with you, though. That's the point. I I think we're actually agreeing more than Mm -hmm. we disagree. I
0: agree with that. Yeah, I think that's true.
1: But I would say we'll we'll find two or three pieces for you. I think one of the you'd listed your four things like defeat China blah blah. I think the one thing you're missing in there is the money layer. What's that? That what that has actually done to people? Like this ability just to create money out of thin air, this driving of the wealth gap from by those who control the spigot. Mm-hmm. I think when you, I think that will be a new bow. You don't have to be a Bitcoiner.
0: No, no. But I think there'll be I, a I'm new. I'm actually quite sympathetic to. I'm. I, I, I'm not. I don't call myself a Bitcoiner just because it sounds quasi-religious. But if it didn't sound quasi-religious, I actually would call myself a lowercase b Bitcoiner. And and the interesting thing is, I just put that into the dismantling the managerial class part of the narrative that I gave you because I do think it's the managerial class that's put in charge of of printing the paper. Yeah. I, I'll say I'll say two things about this. One is. I think you got to be careful about not asking too much of Bitcoin, okay? You may be addressing a very real problem, but don't put too much on the shoulders of addressing problems that are fundamentally cultural in nature that may or may not have to do with money. A lot of it will have to do with money, but not all of it has to. And I think that that sets up for disappointment if you ask for all of the world's perils to be solved by a money-centric explanation. It's just something that it would be a shame that people should be disappointed because you could solve so much- but not a hundred percent. That if you put a hundred percent on the shoulders of Bitcoin, that might be a bit too much. I'm not. Bothered. Yeah. Okay. Good. Yeah. I, I, it's, it's something that I have found it's, it's occasionally popping up in the Bitcoin or a crowd. Bitcoin fixes us. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And it, it's just it's it's almost self undermining for 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 the for the cause itself. uh But you know, I think the other the other question is, I think an interesting economic question that I sort of ponder as a you know, if I had to, I guess, self identify conservative is that trickle-down economics doesn't work in a model where that wealth creation takes place from actually just money raining from on high, like mana from heaven, because the people who are closer to actually collecting it take their rake before it trickles all the way down anyway. It might have worked in a, in, a, in a Fed-free, a non-central bank industrial production society where you would believe in trickle-down economics and policies that created it. That might work. That doesn't work in a society you are right where people are able to exploit Skiing on artificial snow, and once you turn off the spigot, skiing might be worked just fine. If it wasn't on artificial snow that was created from on high, and that's exactly the kind of slopes we've been skiing for the last you know thirty, forty, fifty years in this country.
1: We we could go back and forth. I, I've really enjoyed this. Uh, we're gonna have to follow. I'll come to you next time. Where are you?
0: Oh, Columbus, Ohio. Why don't you come? Uh, uh, you That'd know what?
1: We're overdue. We got to go and see Warren Davidson up there as well. Oh, good. He's We're... a friend. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We got to go He's and see Warren yeah. at some point. Like, we'll get, we will get up to Ohio. If not, are you traveling lots? Yeah. All the time, man. Do you know, I yeah. think you should come to the conference in May, the okay. big, the big Bitcoin conference. I think you should speak. Where is at it? it? Uh, be in Miami. Okay. What's it called? Uh, be Bitcoin 2023. Last year was like, Let's do it. 25,000 people. But listen, let's stay in touch. We're going to send you some stuff. Let's stay I'll in do touch. got yeah. I haven't even looked at my notes yet.
0: <laughs> That's fine. We could go on for hours. Uh, where,
1: where do you want to send people to?
0: Oh, um, strive.com. That's the company I founded. Um, and you can learn. We didn't even get into Strive, by the way, because it is... It is not fixing the money problem, but fixing a big money problem. Okay. The BlackRock problem. We're taking so strive.com and then uh, vivekramaswamy.com, my first name dot last name. V-I-V-E-K-R-A-M-A-S-W-A-M-Y. That's my name.com. All
1: right, we'll put it in the show notes. Thank you so much. I hope I, I look forward to when we can do this again. Awesome. Thank look you. Look forward to man. Okay. Thank you for listening. Vivek had to leave at the end, which was a bit of a shame. I felt like we were really starting to get into something there, really starting to pull the strings on this. Um, But I have spoken to him. We will try and get him back on the show because I do want to expand on some of the things he said. Listen, I don't agree with everything Vivek said. Danny was the same. Danny afterwards said he didn't agree with everything Vivek said, but he certainly an interesting area to explore, especially this whole managerial class area, which he said is the defining struggle of our time. Definitely interested on your feedback on this. If you want to drop me an email about this or anything, please do get in touch and we'll get back to you as soon as possible. My email address is hello at what Bitcoin did. Okay, have a great rest of your week and I will see you all on Friday.